be aware of what the risks are and then make informed decisions about your risk benefit analysis and what your risk tolerance is. Sometimes it might be better to decline admission to somebody um, you know, and risk a fair housing claim than to take somebody in that you know is, is not appropriate and is going to struggle in a particular level. Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I'm a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Welcome to another live recording of the Nursing Home Podcast, the Nursing Home the podcast that was created specifically to give you the information that is not otherwise discussed or written about other places on the internet. Um, today's, we are going to get into marketing do's and don'ts, what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing, in order to make sure you don't get yourself in trouble. And to discuss that, um, we have with us uh, Christina Wildrick, who's the Director of Risk Management at Friends Services Alliance in Blue Hill. Um, sorry, completely butchered that. In Blue Hill, Pennsylvania, she brings over 30 years of legal and healthcare risk management experience, including 14 years of medical malpractice litigation experience. So you kind of know what you're talking about. Christina, welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So it's a pleasure. And I would thank you for joining us. First, if you can just give us like the short version of you know, who you are professionally, so that are a little bit your background, how you got to doing what you're doing right now for quite some time. Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I did medical malpractice defense for um, a number of years in New York. And, um, and then I moved to Pennsylvania um, because uh, I was getting married and my husband was from out of state. And when I moved, I decided to switch hats and I decided to do healthcare risk management. Um, so I was tasked with um, starting up a risk management program for FSA. Uh, at the time, we started with 12 organizations, nonprofit, faith-based communities, um, generally in the Philadelphia area. Since then, we've um, expanded quite a bit, and we now have um, uh, 37 sites in six states. Um, and so I give guidance and consultation uh, on risk management issues. So Today, we are going to talk about marketing risks, but I'm going to talk about it from my perspective, uh, you know, from a risk management perspective and a fair housing perspective. Okay, so thanks for that background. So let's let's get right into it. What is the worst case scenario um, if someone says, you know, I'm going to market however I want to market. I'm going to say what I want to say, do what I want to do. What have you seen as like a worst case scenario of someone has done this and this horrible outcome has happened? Mm. <laughs> Great question. <laughs> Nothing like the fear factor right from the beginning. Um, so what I'm going to preface that question with is uh, an explanation of why there are risks in this venue, in this area. Um, and so uh, in 1968, Congress enacted the Fair Housing Act, which was uh, what I like to call the third leg of the stool um, for civil rights litigation. Um, uh, legislation, rather. And so um, 
we had the uh, Civil Rights Act, then the Voting Rights Act. Then in 1968, they passed the um, Fair Housing Act. And that precluded discrimination in housing choices and lending based upon what we call the protected class status. So started out with race, religion, national origin, color, gender, which now includes um, gender identity and sexual orientation um, and national origin. In 1988, Congress amended the act to include two additional protected class categories. Um, familial status, meaning that you are not supposed to be able to discriminate against uh, families with children. And of course, there is a carve out for our senior living settings. Um, and the one for purposes of our discussion today, which will be very pivotal, is uh, it, it says handicap, but it's what we would refer to as disability. So you have now protections um, under the Fair Housing Act, and we just call it FHA on, for both the Amendments Act and the original act uh, for all those protected classes, which act essentially as a floor, not a ceiling. So state and local jurisdictions can also add an addi additional protected class categories, like, for example, maybe marital status, saying that, you know, you can't discriminate against somebody because they're unmarried or, um, you know, because they cohabitate together, for example, or source of income is another one that's uh, fairly common. So um, I think for a lot of senior living communities, they don't necessarily recognize that they are covered by this act as a housing provider, because I think for a lot of communities, um, they say justifiably, well, we're not a housing provider because we do so much more than that. And you do. However, in the eyes of the government, you are a housing provider and you are subject to the Fair Housing Act. Um, and so there are lots of risks that come along with that. Now, if you choose as an organization just to decide that you're going to market any way you want to and you're not going to pay attention to um, various marketing risks, including fair housing risks, what's the worst case scenario? The worst case scenario is that you end up being in litigation, um, sued by uh, potentially the federal government. So it's now the United States of America versus, um, you know, senior living community ABC. You are in litigation with the government. You are being sued for housing discrimination. Um, almost always that ends very badly for the community. Um, almost always winds up in a monetary settlement. Many times there is also... Um, a settlement compensation fund where the community has to advertise um, in multiple places um, for people that have been subject to what they've just been found by the government to be illegally doing, let's just say, discriminating against those with scooters, for example. Um, and, uh, and so they would have to advertise for anyone that's been impacted by that to give them money. In addition, there's almost always what we call a consent decree that comes with that. Um, it's sort of, if you're familiar with the world of compliance, it's similar to a CIA or a corporate integrity agreement, um, whereby the government um, uh, puts you into this consent decree. Um, and the consent decree not only sets out the exact amount of money that you're going to have to pay and how you would advertise, um, you know, to those who have been um, subject to your discriminatory practices to give them money, but there's also... Um, usually quite onerous burdens that are placed on the community, um, including things like um, they get to, uh, and, and the government will review um, your actions for a period of time. Usually it's about five years. Um, and so they will oversee and have to approve the policies 
put policies in place for whatever the particular topic is, um, change contracts, sometimes hire uh, a fair housing officer to perform um, acts, do training and education for the staff on an ongoing basis. Um, and again, being overseen by the government for a period of time. Uh, in addition, I would also say that um, you don't want to be the poster child for that. So again, I happen to mention scooters. And one of the pivotal cases um, in the world of um, you know communities that have been sued for improper restrictions on scooters is a community called Twinings Village. And I don't like to use them you know, but that that case is out there and everybody knows about it. So you don't want to end up having the reputational damage um, in our world of, of, you know, senior living where it's like, oh, that's the Twining Village case. And so, you know, everybody knows based on that case, you know, some of the policies that you have to have in place and, and the no-nos, the things that you shouldn't be doing. You don't want to become the poster child for that, which can very easily happen. Well, so uh, a couple of questions come to mind. Thank you for that. I mean, that, that's, that's quite an overview. So it were someone to, um, were someone to actually go ahead and uh, let me just back up. So you're saying that there's the, the, the fair housing law, which puts nursing homes together in that category. So therefore they have these discrimination laws uh, like you've outlined. Um, so is this, first of all, is this, specific to marketing uh are we talking about if someone denies a patient because we don't take we don't want patients with scooters because patients with scooters are dumb <laughs> whatever <laughs> yeah. yeah uh yeah so um i'm speaking broadly about senior living communities right so it's anywhere that a person lives okay so if you are running a short-term rehab only then potentially you are excluded from the Fair Housing Act because that's not someone's home. The intention is to treat them for um, a brief period of time with the intention to discharge them. Okay. However, it does apply clearly. All the case law is very clear on this. It does apply to settings like CCRCs, independent living, assisted living, personal care, long-term care. Um, so all of those settings, you know, adult foster care. It does apply to all those settings. It is questionable whether it would apply in the context of a short-term rehab strictly. Okay, but so so let's back up. If if I don't have if I have a regular store and I sell chocolate and desserts and flowers and who knows what else, I can discriminate all I want. No, <laughs> there are other laws. Uh, there are other laws that prohibit you from from doing that, that we're not necessarily speaking about today. But again, when it comes to housing, we are under the auspices of multifamily housing specifically, uh, which means four or more people in a unit um, or, you know, four or more units, I should say, not four or more people. Uh, then you're subject to the Fair Housing Act. So, OK, so the Civil Rights Act says that you can't discriminate. Right. Just suggested i understand that so my point is that you, you have extra laws when it comes to if you're managing or you own a that has um that has multiple families say for like you said four units or more so then you have you have extra focus so now let's assume someone has an assisted living facility a long-term care facility it really can be an apartment building too but we're saying even senior living facilities um and they're going to, and then they discriminate against someone. So does that mean that they refuse admission to someone? Does it mean that right. they, 
Okay, so that's a great question. So discrimination can take multiple forms. It can be, um, just as you said, refusal of admission or you know, refusal for someone, uh, an applicant to be denied admission. That can be a form of discrimination. It can also be a form of discrimination, which is very common. Probably the most common form of discrimination is the refusal to grant what we call a reasonable accommodation for disability. And that's where the scooters would come in, for example. So if I was disabled and I had a mobility impairment and I required a scooter to enable me to get around um, and uh, to meet what we call the essential requirements of tenancy uh, and, and you as the provider refuse to allow me to have that scooter or for example, that service animal, like you had a no pet policy and I wanted to come in with a service animal. Well, that's not a pet. That's a service animal. That's for my disability. That's a reasonable accommodation. So you can refuse and then you could, again, potentially um, be sued for that. But in addition to also refusing to admit somebody, which is a form of discrimination, there are a multitude of other forms of discrimination under the act. And it can be, I come in and I'm able-bodied when I come in. And um, after I'm a resident at your community for some period of time, I now become disabled. Um, and you, and again, I, I've asked for a reasonable accommodation, whatever that may be. Um, and you now refuse to give me that reasonable accommodation. Um, or you um, are discriminating against me um, and saying, um, because let's say I had a, uh, let's say I had a fall. I lived in independent living and I had a fall. Um, and you say, well, now you're not independent anymore. Um, and so you need to move to assisted living because you had a fall. Um, you can't, um, from a legal standpoint, from a fair housing standpoint, there'd have to be way more to it than just forcing me to move up through the continuum for something like what I just described. Um, and then um, additionally, I would also say, that, um, you know, there are, uh, again, just treating, it's essentially under the Fair Housing Act, um, we don't want to treat anyone worse, which is the more common thing to do. We also can't treat anyone better because of their uh, protected class status. So if, I, so again, we serve primarily faith-based communities. So if I had a community that was, for example, a Quaker community, and they said, because we are a Quaker community, we want to give preferential treatment in admission to Quakers. Um, you don't have to meet the same kinds of financial requirements as we require from everybody else. You can't do that either, right? So again, it's admission, but it's also discriminating against somebody once they're there. Okay, so there's also, the what's the line? And I guess this is where the gray area comes in uh, between providing reasonable accommodations in this type of living setting um, versus we can ha we have a no scooter policy, let's say, um, because of a certain maybe a safety concern that we have because due to our building or maybe we, we don't allow service animals, even though it's not a pet, because we have residents with advanced dementia and they view service animals as monsters. They're going to eat them up or any any other sort of reason assuming that it's true, um, or even assuming that it's not true. I mean, you get a good attorney to make something up, but there's reason, the reasonable accommodations versus actual practical reasons why that, the, it's not discrimination, but there's an actual uh, ramification of being, you know, or let's your example, someone was in a, a independent living 
and suffered from a fall and now can no longer emulate uh, safely in that setting. And they want to say, okay, now you have to move on, you know, CCRCs, you have to move on to the assisted living. Like, I don't want to go to the assisted living. Well, over here, you can't take a shower. You can't, you know, prepare your food. You physically can't do it anymore. So we're not discriminating because we don't like people who fall, people who are old or people who are weak. Um, we're just saying that we feel that this is not appropriate. So is that where, and obviously the other side is that, no, I'm fine. It's just because I fell. Don't tell me I need to move on. Let me get some therapy. Let me go to the doctor. Let me let this thing heal. And I want to stay where I am. So is that where, is that why people like you have jobs? Right. So, uh, yeah, perhaps that's why people like me have jobs. But um, what I would say to you is, um, you know, there are parameters around certain things. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, so again, when we talk about um, disability, uh, we there is requ a requirement under the law that says that in order to um, live someplace, whether that's just in the community at large, at you know an apartment building or in a se senior living setting, the um, tenant or the resident has to meet what we call the essential requirements of tenancy, no matter what. Disability, no disability, you still have to meet the essential requirements of tenancy. So mm -hmm. what are those? Um, first and foremost is um, paying your rent and fees on time. Number two is um, keeping your unit in a safe, clean, and sanitary condition. Now, um, you know, I think that reasonable people may differ as to what's safe, clean, and sanitary, right? Um, also obeying the reasonable community rules. OK, unless, of course, there has to be an exception made because of the reasonable accommodation because of somebody's disability. But again, generally speaking, you should have a set of reasonable community rules because people have to obey those rules. Um, you also cannot um, have excessive damage to um, the unit. OK, normal wear and tear is OK. If I scrape the walls because of my scooter, that's OK. But if I decide to, you know, take a, a, a hammer and make holes in the walls, that's not normal wear and tear. Also, not unduly disturbing the peace and tranquility of others, okay? And the last one, which is very important, is not being a direct threat to the health and safety of others. Now, in my opinion, and this is not in the law, this is not uh, in the essential requirements of tenancy, when you are in a senior living community, um, I feel that it is reasonable to say you cannot be a direct threat, a direct threat. That's very important language, um, not speculative, a real direct threat to your own health and safety. OK, so uh, but that's not been tested in the courts yet. That's Christina's theory, but I think it's a good one. Um, and so um, Hold on, we'll go, we'll talk about that for a second. Um, yeah. If someone's. Um, in an when they're and they're a threat to themselves, and certainly if they're a threat to us, even if they're not, if they're trying to physically harm themselves, they're trying to slit their wrists, they're trying to jump out a window, they're trying to, I don't know, whatever, anything else that's unsafe, and the facility has done everything that they can to prevent, stop, intervene, assist. Um, so there's a question. There are those who say that, no, you cannot, let's say, Section 12 of them, you cannot send them out to the hospital um, because that, that would be discrimination. Is that even a possibility? Well, 
No, under the scenario that you just described, you're not evicting them. You're not getting them out permanently. You're just sending them out. So I, I would say, no, that's, that's reasonable. The, but there have been situations that I like the examples that you use because they are extreme examples. And I would argue if I were the provider that there is no reasonable accommodation that will um, diminish, you know, that threat. But that's always going to be a question because tying in with meeting the essential requirements of tenancy, which everyone has to do no matter what, um, that's where the reasonable accommodations come in. So if I have a disability and I ask for a reasonable accommodation or you become aware that I need a reasonable accommodation, um, then it should be granted because the reasonable accommodation is generally what's going to help me meet those essential requirements of tenancy. Now, going back just to the example that you used uh, of someone who's suicidal or homicidal even, um, the, you know, I could say I can't handle, I don't have, I'm not equipped to handle psychiatric issues. And I certainly can't, um, you know, protect my other residents from this homicidal individual, or I can't protect them from themselves because there's so many ways that they could attempt suicide. Um, and so they are not meeting the essential requirements of tenancy because they are a direct threat. There have been occasions and there have been some cases where, um, in circumstances like that, um, the courts have said, well, and it's not specific to senior living. It's, it's just general housing. Well, um, you should try a reasonable accommodation first. So for example, if you send that person out, um, you know, to be involuntarily, um, you know, incapacitated, uh, in a, a psych facility for a period of time. And let's say that they have been given medications that would, you know, presumably control their behaviors, then the, the, resident or the tenant in this case would be able to say, well, my reasonable accommodation and I should be allowed to stay because I can remain on this medication regimen and then my behaviors are controlled. But uh, I know of a case uh, from a number of years ago, multifamily housing out in Connecticut, and um, an individual had psychiatric issues and um, actually went after the landlord with a big butcher knife and threw him down to the ground and started to stab him. That gentleman was arrested and, um, and then the landlord sent notice, you know, you're hereby evicted, you know, after, after he got out of jail, after he spent um, some time in jail and came back, he realized that he couldn't come back to the apartment because he had been evicted and he sued and he said, you're discriminating against me. And the court in that case actually said, well, you have to try, let him have his reasonable accommodation. And, um, you know, but I think that's not, in my view, that wouldn't be a reasonable accommodation. It's not reasonable um, to allow someone who has, you know, extreme behaviors like that. You know, again, that's a direct threat that we can't keep other people safe or that even that resident, we can't keep them safe. So that's, that's the insane. extreme example. But, you know, most cases are not as extreme. And most cases, you're going to have to try the reasonable accommodation and sometimes multiple reasonable accommodations before you would say you're violating the terms of the resident contract or the lease or the agreement, whatever it is that we have. And now you're going to have to leave or move up to a higher level of care. You're going to have to try a few different reasonable accommodations to be safe before you can generally do that, or you'll risk potentially a fair housing claim. Well, that's uh, very messed up. Just that's my everybody. Um, because to see that someone who physically attempted to murder their landlord was jailed for it and now evicted, uh, reasonable accommodation, um, 
know, that sounds that sounds crazy. But if you don't, I mind, agree with you on that. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that piece that. was an outlier. But I just felt like I, you know, I had to, you know, kind of raise that to say it's not necessarily a slam dunk. But generally speaking, yeah, when somebody is a direct threat and it's not speculative, it's not fear that something might happen. It's something did happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So I want to be clear about something. When it comes to reasonable accommodations, as a provider, you can and should have rules, you don't have to make it willy-nilly, but you are allowed to have reasonable rules surrounding common accommodations, reasonable accommodations. So for example, let's use the scooters again. Um, it, it would be um, probably very high risk if you just said, we don't allow scooters, but it's okay if you said, we allow scooters, but we have these rules. A rule, I always encourage my communities to have reasonable rules. A rule might be that um, you have to sit with therapy and review the rules of the community to use a scooter first. Sign, you know, get educated on it and then sign off that you're agreeing, you understand all your questions have been answered and you agree to abide by the rules. And those rules might be things like you can only drive your scooter as fast as uh, a non-disabled person can walk. You don't have the right to drive your scooter around like speed racer, right? It may say you have to have a horn and lights if you're going to drive outside. You have to obey the rules of the road on campus. You have to have a flag. You can't park and block fire exits. You can't block um, mailboxes. Um, if you're going to drive into the dining room, um, you, you have to have room. And I want to touch on something that you mentioned um, a, a few moments ago, saying my community is older and it and it's not equipped for, you know, these big, you know, SUV scooters that people have now. Under the ADA, which also sometimes can tie in with the Fair Housing Act, um, there are also construction requirements. So the ADA went into effect in March of 1991. So did those construction requirements. So if you have construction that occurred after March of 1991, or if your building is older than that, but you've done any kind of a renovation on your building. And the term renovation is pretty flimsy and loose. It could be even like redecorating can be considered a renovation. You then had to comply with the dictates of the ADA in terms of the physical requirements. Like, so for example, it talks about thresholds. You can't have, you know, a big, where someone can't come up on the scooter, you know, because of the threshold um, or, you know, with their walker, uh, that's, that's an issue thresholds. Um, grab bars, lowering cabinets um, in handicap accessible units. Uh, a certain number of your units should be made handicap accessible. It's, that depends on how many units you have. It's a percentage. Um, and, and simple things like uh, aisles wide enough for people to use their scooters. Um, and arguably in our setting, you know, knowing that many, many people do have mobility impairments, um, it's even more important, you know, to make sure that your community has abided by the rules. And the Department of Justice, um, you know, and lots of fair housing groups um, and, and HUD also has put in a tremendous amount of money to talk about people's fair housing rights and to make sure that um, providers and architects and uh, contractors are aware of what the physical requirements are for spacing and things like that and thresholds. And they've spent a, a, a tremendous amount of money 
um, talking about that and making sure that people are aware. So it becomes very challenging in these days. Um, every month, a, a case will come out at least once a month on, um, you know, again, uh, uh, the owner of multifamily housing, the owner of senior housing, uh, a municipality, um, you know, many different types um, for failing to construct their um buildings in accordance with the requirements of the ADA. So you have to be careful about that, but there are reasonable rules. So have them about service animals. Um, you know, you can have them about scooters, you know, any other kinds of reasonable accommodations. You should have, you know, rules around them. Private duty aids. They're another reasonable accommodation mm -hmm. that you should have rules about. Got it. Got it. Uh, sometimes we see this, the application of these rules, uh, you know, don't seem so reasonable. I know a particular, a construction project that was not required to have an elevator, but was required to have handicapped accessible bathrooms on the second floor. Go figure. <laughs> right. Right. I don't know how, you know, somebody who's disabled, you know, then they would have to have the right amount of housing on the first floor, you know, handicap accessible. It, was, it wasn't a housing project, um, but per se, but, you know, we do see things like that sometimes, but that doesn't that doesn't negate uh, the rules. Uh, but let, but let, if we can focus the conversation from a marketing standpoint, mm -hmm. okay. Um, we want to, you know, we titled this the do's and don'ts of nursing home marketing. So right. I know that there are things that we cannot say. For example, uh, that nursing homes can't say that they're dementia units because there are laws. This has nothing to do with. Fair housing, but this is Department of Public Health. This they have a clearly defined, um, you know, a lot of regulations for what what's what's qualified as a dementia unit, and there's a whole right. process to go through. So you could call it memory care, you could call it a lot of other things, but you can't call it by that name. Um, I've actually walked in one of the nursing homes where I was managing, at least in Mass in Massachusetts. I worked with the gentleman whose name is Doctor Paul Rea, and he's the one who wrote the regulations for what's called a dementia unit. And the, we were thinking of maybe turning one of our units, our memory, our unit though anyway was a dementia unit to just make it an official one. Um, and the cost and um, and just the work that it would take, not just money, but also the inconvenience and the downtime and uh, that it would take, you know, to get it in compliance was just didn't make sense. And we changed the wording in our marketing materials and we had the same result. So instead, we just decided, you know, it was a company decision. We, you know, should we do, should we not do this? And we saw how extensive it was, it didn't make sense. So right. Zoom is what is the absolute, give me a great example of someone that did something horrific in their <laughs> marketing or, or something that someone can do like really bad in their marketing. And like, I guess I'm a worst case scenario person. And, um, and what happened as a result or what could happen as a result? So let me give you some examples of things that um, are risks in marketing when it comes to fair housing. Um, and I've jotted a few of these um, down so that, um, you know, I cover everything. So the first one that I would talk about is models, models or people in your marketing materials, photographs of individuals, right? Um, <clears throat> that can be problematic um, because, for example, uh, we talked about the protected class of um, race, right? So if you only have photographs, they want to see, the government wants to see diversity. Um, so if you have, uh, you know, all um, Caucasian um, individuals, um, that could be uh, a risk for you because where are the people of color? 
Um, you're not allowed to discriminate based on someone's color. What if everybody in your marketing, marketing materials is um, running, jogging, biking, doing yoga? We're all the people that are on scooters, in wheelchairs, um, with walkers. Um, so models can be um, potentially problematic. Another issue would be um, problematic language in your materials. Um, another one could be um, potentially, uh, I know a lot of times marketing, especially in, in the CCRC setting, will do uh, what's called a targeting marketing campaign, right? So they want it, uh, they're targeting to a particular income level, all right? And they're sending their materials out to that, to the people in a particular um, geographic area that meet those income requirements. Well, um, there have been cases where um, that's been uh, considered to be a discriminatory practice. Why? Because you're only sending all your marketing material specifically to potentially just white people, okay? And you're excluding, um, and you may not have any discriminatory intent with that, but that's the way it comes out. And in the Supreme Court has decided that in fair housing, there is something called disparate impact. It doesn't have to be that you purposely discriminated against somebody, but the, the, there is an actual disparate impact. Um, so that's an area that you want to be careful about. Um, lack of an improper, lack of the fair housing logo, it's the little house, or having the logo, but it's minuscule. You can't see it. You, if you have the logo and you should have the logo, the fair housing logo, it's uh, put out by the government. Uh, if you have one for leading age, or you have one for, you know, whatever local societies you belong to, and they're all of a certain font and your fair housing is teeny tiny in the bottom, that's problematic. And there is no requirement, by the way, on font, um, which makes it a little bit more complicated, but you want to make sure that it's the same size as everything else. Um, exclusionary practices for admission. Again, we don't let people in with scooters or we don't let people in with service animals. Um, problematic applications, asking lots of, uh, again, this is for independent living, not for nursing or you know, uh, assisted living or personal care. Uh, asking medical questions if you're not a type A community. That can be potentially problematic. Asking intrusive questions, asking them to undergo a physical exam. Um, if you don't have, you know, a guarantee of movement through the continuum of care, that can be highly problematic. Um, improper, uh, um, oh, I mentioned the improper request for physical exams. Steering, which is a term of art in the fair housing world. Steering means that I come in and I... Either and, and the government, by the way, and so do fair housing groups, send testers in to ask these questions and try if they think there's discrimination going on, they will send somebody in who pretends to be an applicant or is looking for housing for their loved one um, and ask the questions to see what the answers are. Steering means that I come in and I say, hey, uh, you know, my mom is looking for independent living. Um, she uses a scooter. She needs some help with her medication management. Um, you know, she sometimes gets a little bit confused and, you know, if you were to say to me, well, you know, she might feel a lot more comfortable if she goes over into assisted living, that might be a, a, a better place for her. We don't really like those kinds of people in independent living. We don't want to look like a nursing home that's steering. And that is, um, illegal under the fair housing act, uh, discriminatory denial of reasonable accommodations. And again, being aware of the state and local laws that expand upon the protected classes and making sure that you are not, uh, again, 
discriminating against additional protected classes that your local jurisdiction or state may have in place. So those are a, a whole series of marketing risks that I would tell you you have to be careful of. Got it. So let's say I have an assisted living and I am targeting a certain group because this is the group that actually needs the service, can afford the service, uh, will maybe want the service. Um, is there no legal way to target that group? Uh, if I'm going to put people, let's say, let's say your example of models or even, you know, language, if I'm going to put words on there or pictures or other things that don't resonate with them, then they're obviously much less likely to, you know, to respond. Um, it doesn't mean that these are the only people that I'm marketing to. I may have a separate brochure and a separate marketing uh, plan for, you know, for a different ethnic group or a different protected class. But right now I want to focus on these people. It, you know, an open invitation is no invitation. Come over to my house any night you want for a barbecue. That means you're not invited. I'm not even telling you my address. But if I say Tuesdays at, at 4 p.m., we're having a barbecue, you know, a, a, please bring over, bring over your family. Here's my address. Then you're invited. Right. So the point is people will resonate to marketing material if it if they will they will act on it resonates with them so if it you know if it's tailored to them then it'll work can i that's is there no legal way to do that uh there you know i well first of all i want to be clear i'm not giving legal advice here i'm giving you advice okay. from a risk management standpoint okay. um and so you know listen everything that we do is associated with a risk benefit analysis right so i want to be clear about that um so a community can make a determination, what is their risk tolerance? If they really want to market and target um, towards a particular uh, you know, group because of their income, and it turns out that, that they feel like, uh-oh, we could be um, accused of discriminatory behavior because it's going to go to you know, all white people. Um, that is a question. If you still want to market to that group, uh, I'm not here to say you can't do it or you shouldn't do it. I'm just saying, be aware that that's a risk, right? So anything that you market on could be a risk. But if you think that the benefit of targeting a particular group of people is going to, you know, bring in the people that you want or that you think would benefit from your services, then that would be your assessment of, and, and that would be a risk tolerance for your community, Got right? Got it. Um, who are the discrimination police that are going to bring this case in front of, you know, they're going to get, you know, secret people coming in undercover and asking for service? So um, the DOJ has testers that work for them in the Civil Rights Division. No, but who um, brings it to their attention so that someone would want to come down? Yeah. So I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of um, fair housing advocacy groups out there. There are a lot of law school clinics that also have fair housing um you know, uh, clinics that, that are staffed by law students. Um, the government gives money there like quasi um, public, private, uh, public government entities. They get money from the government um, in recognition uh, of their work and they get money from the government to do that. So they are there to enforce fair housing rights. Um, usually the way it would work is if I am an individual, uh, many times this is how it happens. I'm an individual. I go... I apply for residency at a particular community. I feel that I've been discriminated against for whatever reason, the, you know, my disability, my religion, the color of my skin, whatever it is. Um, 
uh, I go to a fair housing group and I make a complaint. If they, they will then investigate my complaint. Um, if they feel that there is some validity to that, they will do their own research. They will start their own investigation. They will have testers. They will go out. They then turn it over usually to HUD with their findings. If they feel that there is what we call a pattern or a practice of discrimination, they will send it to HUD. If HUD the Housing and Urban Development Office of the government feels that it rises to a certain level and they think that there is a discriminatory pattern and practice going on, then that gets referred over to the Department of Justice. So the lawsuit can either be me, Wildrick versus ABC Senior Living, if I feel that I've been discriminated against individually. I can sue you in state court or federal court. Um, if it's uh, a fair housing group, then a lot of times... Um, you know, that fair housing group will bring it on my, on my behalf. So it would be Wildrick and the Fair Housing Alliance versus um, if it goes to HUD, it would be, you know, HUD, Housing and Urban Development, v the housing community. And again, in the worst case scenario, it rises up to the level of the DOJ, the Department of Justice, and they will bring the claim and it will then be the United States of America. It will be um, in federal court and it will be brought against you. So there are they are essentially what you're referring to as the police. They are the enforcers. They are bringing them. But private claims can be brought by individuals or by private housing groups, and there are loads of them out there, or the government can do it. Well, so now on a professional standpoint, where do, where do you come in with the business that you're involved in? Uh, which piece of this? Are, are, you, are you the police? Are you the defendants? Are you just educating people to stay away from the cops? So my, right. So my job as the risk manager for FSA, for the communities that we work with, um, we uh, bring, we do lots of education. We do lots of fair housing education, both for marketing and admission staff, as well as staff within the community that is responsible to move people through that continuum of care. So we do loads of education for them. We also come in many times and we do education for the residents themselves. Um, we have meetings with residents. Sometimes residents, for example, may say, um, you know, things that we feel are um, inappropriate, like um, why is so-and-so in the dining room? She's in a wheelchair and, and she's totally out of it. And I don't want to look at that when I'm eating and, um, you know, or asking questions. Why is this person living in independent living? This person doesn't belong here. She's not like the rest of us. She should go into assisted living. Um, you know, we have a problem with it. We're here to educate the residents on their rights as residents, um, as well as, you know, what the Fair Housing Act says and why we're not going to share any details and information with them about other residents and what we're doing with them and for them as far as reasonable accommodations or any, any other way that we're working with them. So we like to educate the residents. We also work specifically with marketing teams. We help them with, again, do's and don'ts in their marketing materials, language um, that they should um, have on all of their websites, on their brochures, on anything that they're doing. We help them uh, with information on, um, you know, things to share um, and not share during tours. Um, so, you know, we're here and, and we develop all kinds of, uh, templates for policies and procedures and things of that nature. We also work with the risk management committees, um, to review all of the marketing materials and the website before they actually go live, um, and before anything's printed to make sure that everything is, um, you know, on the up and up, both from a fair housing standpoint and a general risk management standpoint. We don't want people 
over-promising set, you know, it's all about for us setting realistic expectations. So we're here at FSA to help our communities understand what it is, understand the risks, and also develop policies, procedures, rules, guidance. So we talk about rules and we have templates for rules for service animals, rules for scooters, rules for private duty aids, um, hold harmless agreements, indemnification agreements when somebody does want to hire a private aid to make sure that they understand that we're not responsible for you know what they do or what they do incorrectly or what they fail to do. So those are um, all things that we do at FSA in our risk management program um, to assist the organizations that we work with. Fascinating. Um, we, we've gone a little bit later because you're sharing, you're dropping all the jewels here. Um, but the question for, is there anything, it may not be necessarily fair housing related, but if there are residents in a senior living setting that completely disregard um, all, all discriminatory laws and regulations. I have some people that just don't care anymore. And they'll say things to the staff about their religion, about the color of their skin, about the country that they come from, about their accent, and they'll, they, they have nothing to lose. Is there any recourse? And you can educate them, but they don't care. Is there any recourse that providers can do to help really prevent their staff, not pr protect their staff, um, or the residents from each other when you have residents that completely ignore all of the rules that we're discussing? Okay, well, that would be a topic for an entire other podcast. But what I will say is what you're describing um, for your employees is a hostile work environment. And um, even if you cannot stop the resident from saying, you know, the um, bigoted, you know, racist kinds of things that you're describing, um, you cannot, as a provider, throw your hands up and say, oops, sorry. Uh, you know, in, in one particular case uh, that was, it's a fairly recent case um, that was brought um, for a, a hostile work environment. Um, the CNA was being, um, you know, uh, spoken to in that manner that you just said, and also sexually harassed, groped, touched, um, you know, and the administrator in that case, uh, the language that she used was, um, put your big girl panties on and deal with it. Okay. And they got hit with a massive verdict. Um, so you don't want to do that. Uh, but so again, there are things that you should and, and can do um, to mitigate the harm that comes to employees. So, you know, for example, um, you might want to switch staffing patterns around. You might, if it's somebody that is, you know, touching inappropriately, then you might want to use, you know, a male caregiver, or you might send that person in with a second caregiver at all times. Uh, or you might, again, like in the case of uh, the, the CNA that I was just talking about, she has to be moved to a different wing away from that resident. And that's right. when the administrator said that to her. So again, you want to look, there's all different things that you can do, but what you shouldn't do is to basically throw your hands up and say, there's nothing that I can do about that. No, of course not. No, the question that the, the question is not um, about the app, but the question is, is there anything that can be done to, I guess, to encourage or force the people who live in that setting um, not to engage in those practices? Well, um, other than what you just described, you know, like the education and it, uh, obviously it's going to depend on the on the, uh, you know, on the competency of that individual. If that individual right, has intellectual disabilities and or dementia. Right. right. 
right? But if they don't have those things, then, um, you know, and, and they're not abiding by the rules, then there may have to be, you know, after you've spoken to them, docu and documentation is key. You have to be documenting everything you're doing, every effort you're making, um, every con conversation that you've had. And if that resident is refusing, then there may have to be uh, a discharge in that case got because it. you're not able to care for them anymore. Got it. Got it. Fascinating. If people want to learn more about uh, the topics that we're discussing or learn more about you and your company, uh, where's a good resource? Where's a good place to send them to? Um, our website, fsainfo.org. Okay. Is a, good, is a good place. And it has, as you know, a number of the resources that we have on there. We, um, you know, we provide a lot of different services in addition to risk management. Awesome. Okay. Um, FSA, what is it? FSA info? Yep. FSAinfo.org. Okay. We'll include that in the show notes. I'm going to take a little peek. All right. Um, any final thoughts before we let you go for today? Again, I think it's really important that you recognize and discuss, uh, you know, what your risk tolerance is, um, because the message that I want you to take is, yeah, there are a lot of fair housing rules and the advocacy groups really, um, you know, they take a very strong position, pro-tenant, pro-resident, um, you know, myself, uh, you know, representing providers and, and on the, you know, trying to keep providers out of trouble, I might take a, a more restrictive view of it, but it's really and risk a fair housing claim than to take somebody in that you know is is not appropriate and is going to struggle in a particular level of care, um, you know, and is going to you know be really um, a massive burden to you. Uh, you might choose to take the risk of, of potentially uh, a discrimination fair housing claim than to take somebody in that you know is going to be uh, incredibly problematic and and potentially present you with a negligence action. Got it. Got it. Okay. I'm just going to... Wait, you just went on mute. Oh, no, you didn't. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong place here. Uh, that's my bad. But there's uh, just one comment here uh, from Hannah. It says, thank you, Christina, for sharing your expertise as a marketing professional. For senior living organizations, it's very interesting to think through the risks, which is definitely true. And this is something you brought to us. Thank you very much, uh, Christina, for joining us today and for sharing everything that you shared over here on the show. It definitely has been very informative, um, just about, like you said, knowing the risks, when to take them, when not to take them. Right. Thanks so much. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Now that you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd rate this podcast and let everyone else know what an amazing resource this is for those wanting to learn anything and everything about the nursing home industry. So head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Leave me a review and let the world know what an amazing show this truly is. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay tuned and subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes.